is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Brian Ping, in this week for Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, both win, but (laughs) Depp wins a lot more. A jury ruling in favor of both Depp and Heard in their defamation trial, but the jurors gave Depp a lot more in terms of award money. We'll go in depth into the celebrity defamation trial a bit later in the program. Meantime, a historic report now out here in California detailing the state's role in discrimination against African-Americans. It lays out the problems, what could be done to correct them, and sets up the groundwork for slavery reparations. We'll look into the State Reparations Task Force report and what it means for California. And some L.A. County lifeguards are making bank at the beach. A new report details how one lifeguard made more than $510,000 last year. We'll look into how that happened. Nice payday. Meanwhile, the Bay Area was once held up as a shining example of how to slow COVID, but it's now dealing with another surge. Russia is gaining ground in Ukraine as the U.S. and other Western countries look to further help stop Russian aggression. We go in-depth with a former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO on how this war will shape Europe, Russia, and the U.S. moving forward. And two scientists say they think they know why aliens don't visit Earth kind of lonely here on Earth, as it turns out. Well, maybe the reason why is the reason we might never go visit them. I, I think they came here, they took a look around, and they said, what We're a, out of here. Yeah, what a <laughs> dump. <laughs> We're not going to go Too crazy. Here. We're yeah. gone. Okay, but we start, though, with a Reparations Task Force report. With us is uh, Camilla Moore, attorney and chair of the task force. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate your time. Tell us, uh, in a nutshell, what uh, the conclusions of the report are. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Uh, so the conclusions of this interim report, so this is the first report we're releasing, but we are mandated to uh, release a second or final report in June of next year. But this interim report is 600 pages long, 13 chapters that catalogs the harms against the African-American community since the transatlantic slave trade to present with the conclusion that reparations are owed on a state level as well as a federal level as well. You know, harms done to African Americans you know, since uh, the earliest days of slavery are, are universal, but what in California specifically uh, did the report find in ways that uh, African Americans have been harmed over these uh, past centuries? Absolutely. So in each chapter of the 13 chapters, uh, there's a California section or breakdown of the harms, and then there's a nationwide or national breakdown of the harms. So in each chapter, as I said, you know, there will be a detailed explanation as to how California was complicit in harming the African-American community, starting with slavery, because a lot of people don't think or understand how California was implicit, complicit in maintaining the institution of slavery um, because you know, the, the California state was admitted to the Union as a quote-unquote free state in 1850, but that was just in name. Slavery was still allowed in California. And two short years after it was admitted to the Union in 1852, the California legislature enacted a Fugitive Slave Act. So if you were free in, in California, you were a black person, let's say you might have um, escaped slavery from the South or in other areas of California, under that Fugitive Slave Act, 
you could be at risk of deportation to the South to be re-enslaved or re-enslaved even in the state. Okay, so now let's let's get to the reparations part. What does the report recommend? So, you know, the, the report rec- has some preliminary recommendations, um, but particularly or interestingly enough, um, this report does not outline any comprehensive plan for reparations in the form of compensation or cash or a check. That will come in our second report. Um, so this report right now that's released today, you know, catalogs the harms against the African-American community, essentially substantiating the claim, the very valid and robust claim for African-Americans. And some of the recommendations include reparations in the form of free education or, you know, um, um, other areas, uh, programmatic areas around reparations, but not necessarily compensation, not yet. You focused uh, in your your first comments on this about uh, slavery, but the, and the Civil War era. But then let's uh, go forward to the twentieth and twenty first century. Of course, the legacy of discrimination uh, lives on, and the uh, report uh, outlines that as well. Yes, absolutely. So, what the report calls that legacy of slavery or the afterlife of slavery, we're calling it the badges and incidents of slavery. So, although slavery was abolished via the 13th Amendment, unless you were, you know, convicted of a crime, um, you know, the badges and incidents of slavery still exist in this country and are particularly uh, African-Americans are affected by that through, you know, housing discrimination, through redlining or disproportionate use of of eminent domain, through land takings. Um, It shows up in the health outcomes and the wealth and income outcomes of the African-American community as well through the homelessness numbers in this state, mass incarceration, the victims of police terror. Um, there's many badges and incidents. I'm, I'm curious if the report addresses what might be, I suspect, in the future anyway, uh, resistance on the part of some to reparations. I mean, no one can deny the, the horrors that were inflicted on African-Americans throughout U.S. history and, and indeed California, California's own history. Where it may get a bit tricky is when it gets to the reparation part. Does the report take that into account and address that? Yes, and the task force, which comprises of nine members, including myself, we're also taking the time to be intentional in addressing that. And part of it means that we're actually hiring you know, a communications consultant and team that will help educate, you know, the California public about our findings, um, the diverse California public about our findings, in hopes that that, you know, um, brings more people along to support this effort. Uh, but there's other, you know, strategies and ways that we're also contemplating to get as much of a critical mass of support as we can, understanding that there will be resistance no matter no matter what. Camille Moore, chair of the California Reparations Task Force. And Ms. Moore, thank you for joining us. But right now, there's a new report uh, from the transparency group OpenTheBooks.com, and it is making uh, all the pun intended waves. It looked into the pay of lifeguards in L.A. County, and it found more than 90 lifeguards earned more than $200,000 last year. 20 of them took home more than $300,000. The highest salary? One captain made off with more than 510000 bucks. Wow. Yeah. With us now to explain or try to explain what was found is Adam Andrzejewski, CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com. Adam, thanks for being 
with us. I, I, I got to start off, though, by saying when, when we first heard about these numbers earlier today, I think everyone's reaction here was, wow, that's a lot of money. And yes, it's worth a lot if, uh, you know, someone saves your life if you're drowning. But it still seemed like an awful lot. But I should tell you, we reached out to the L.A. County lifeguards and a spokesperson told us, well, you know, they do more than just save people's lives in the ocean. And they mentioned that they do uh, incident management uh, teams. They support firefighters. So if you add all that into the equation, uh, is it that odd? Look, um, you know, who knew that an L.A. County lifeguard, they work in the sun, the ocean surf, the golden sands of California. You know, I'm I'm from Illinois. It's the Super Bowl of corruption. It looks pretty good to go to Baywatch and and be a lifeguard and all in at taxpayer cost, make up to $510,000 a year. And this is why our organization at OpenTheBooks.com is saying that we need to put Baywatch on Paywatch. Okay, so I went on ZipRecruiter and I found the average salary for um, Los Angeles County Ocean Lifeguard is about you know $34,000. Of course, it doesn't come anywhere close to these eye-popping figures. Are these just anomalies for people who, I don't know... I won't, I won't say game the system, but, you know, you know, find ways to maximize their pay. And uh, is, is this really something that we should be worried about the salary of 20 people? Yeah, I think we should. When 20 people make more than $300,000 a year in, in the lifeguard corps, uh, and if you take a look at the 98 of those lifeguards that at taxpayer cost every single year make more than $200,000 per year, I think there's a there's a problem with pay perks and pension benefits over the Los Angeles Fire Department in the lifeguard corps. Uh, and so if we dig a little deeper into this, your top 10, they all made more than 337,000 last year in 2021 at taxpayer cost. And four of them actually didn't even work any overtime at all. It's the lifeguard chief, it's the it's the it's the chief of the entire department. It's the two section chiefs, and so they're not even eligible for overtime, and they're still making between three hundred and four hundred and sixty three thousand dollars a year. Okay, but let's look at the ones who are eligible for overtime. I'm still trying to figure out the math. How does somebody who Brian, you said that the the base pay was what about thirty about thirty four thousand about thirty four grand a year? How does somebody making thirty four grand a year, no matter how many hours of overtime they put in? How does it end up being hundreds of thousands of dollars? So I, I think that, you know, the $34,000 a year, that might be a pool, pool lifeguard in L.A. County because no, I looked it up. It said ocean, ocean lifeguard. Yeah, the ocean lifeguards, for instance, the chief of the ocean lifeguards is base salary last year was two hundred and forty three thousand dollars. And so you have, you know, captains at one hundred and fifty thousand on base salary alone. Uh, now, the top paid uh, captain last year on overtime did pull down roughly 246,000 on overtime alone. We looked at his last six years. So last year just wasn't an anomaly. Over the last six years, this this lifeguard captain pulled down $980,000 in overtime alone. His total compensation over the last six years was north of $2.3 million in the lifeguard corps. I have to admit it, it. It's a startling figure. I wonder, though, is it kind of like uh, sports figures who, you know, they make a lot of money, but that's because they don't have usually a very long expectant, uh, you know, life in terms of their careers because they get old and they can't 
function anymore as sports figures. The same with, with you know, movie stars. They command a lot of money, but often that's because they don't work for a good number of years. So they try to make as much money as they can up front. Is it the same thing, though, with lifeguards that I suppose after a certain age, you probably can't be a lifeguard anymore? Well, if you put 30 years and if you retire at age 55, you get 79% of your cash compensation for the rest of your life. So it's, it is a pretty sweet deal. Now we, you know, many people say, well, lifeguarding is dangerous. Um, you know, they deserve every single dime. Well, we did take a look at the most dangerous jobs in the United States on figures compiled by the U.S. Department of Labor. And lifeguarding isn't even on the list. The most dangerous job in America is being a truck driver, for example, or an airline pilot, or a construction worker. These people have the highest fatalities. They have the highest injuries on the job, lifeguard, and they're not paid a half million dollars a year. Lifeguarding isn't even on the list. All right. So uh, briefly, what do we do about it? What do you do? Do you go to the County Board of Supervisors and say, you know, I I, I can't believe this is a relatively new thing. This has probably been going on for a while, but uh, really no action there. So it has gotten worse since 2013. Look, in 2013, L.A. County lifeguards, they made too much money at taxpayer costs. They were around three hundred and eighty thousand. They were around uh, two hundred and eighty thousand dollars today. North of five hundred thousand dollars. I think people need to raise their voice. There needs to be reform within the L.A. County life lifeguard corps. People need to take it to their elected member on the county board. And there needs to be reform within the ranks. But I want to go back to what we said at the beginning of the segment when I was uh, paraphrasing what a spokesperson for the lifeguards told us, that they do a lot more than just, you know, sit up on the, that high chair in the beach and then jump into the water if somebody is clearly in trouble, that they're doing things like firefighting or helping firefighters, things like that. Now, you can argue, I suppose, that that's not the, the job uh, description, or at least not initially. But if, in fact, they're doing some of that, then shouldn't they be compensated accordingly? Well, I think, you know, some are EMTs and paramedics. Some are part of underwater recovery teams, and they participate in diving operations. Some are marine firefighters with specialized training for fireboat operations. You know, some, some of the lifeguards are on duty for 24 hours at a time. They're allotted eight hours of sleep. If they've got a call that interrupts their slumber after five hours or less, the entire 24-hour period is counted as a workday. Look, you know, uh, they work hard. However, keep keep in mind, four-star generals in the United States military have a base salary of $197,000 a year. There's only 14 of them. They command millions of men and women underneath you know, are underneath their command in the military. All right. That's Adam Anjevsky, CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com. We're out of time, Adam, but thank you very much for joining us. Coming up, we uh, ask a former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO how the war in Ukraine possibly ends and what happens to Europe, Russia, and the U.S. And two scientists, they say they think they know why we have never been visited by aliens. They, uh, their answer might be a little disturbing not to the aliens but to us <laughs> well right now well covid might be a reason why they want no part of us right now but the, the cases are on the rise across california even in the bay area where they're getting hit particularly hard after being a model of uh, good behavior when it comes to covid over these last two years so what's up with that well dr monica Gotti is back with us she's an infectious disease physician at uc san francisco uh, Dr. Gandhi, explain this to us as best you can. Uh, have they been letting down their guard a little too much up there? 
You know, I think it actually has to do with the fact that we have lower rates in the Bay Area of natural immunity than you do down in Southern California. So um, we were more locked down. Um, we uh, kind of stuck to the tiers and even more so. And that lack of natural immunity um, probably is leading to our increased case rates. In fact, there was an analysis across all of California and places that have higher rates of boosters are actually having higher case rates, not because the booster doesn't work, but because hybrid immunity, having a combination of both, seems to convey the best immunity. But you know, you some, know, pe- but, but some people are going are to hear that and they're going to say, wow. So in other words, for those of us who did a terrible job in Southern California, we're now being rewarded. And for those of you in the Bay Area who did a really bang up job in the beginning, you're being punished. Well, this is a very unfortunate aspect of COVID-19 is that we have seen throughout the entire planet that this combination of infection plus vaccination, though I'd rather have it the other way, vaccination and then infection is a stronger form of immunity. There's nothing we can do about that. I'm not, you know, mincing words here. Um, And, um, you know, I wish that we had a whole virus vaccine to show us the whole virus without being exposed to the virus. But it looks like hybrid immunity or super immunity is best. And so because of that, we're seeing this all around the country, places with high kind of kept lockdown more, more mask wearing, all of that um, had higher cases during this last Omicron surge. Yeah, moral of the story is, you know, despite our best efforts, uh, really, no matter where you are, if you let your guard down for even a moment, it's going to get you eventually. I think the fact that's right. I think that it's hard to avoid COVID altogether. The best part about it, though, is that, of course, our vaccines have prevented severe disease and death. So even right now in the city of San Francisco, as our cases have gone up very high, the hospitalizations are staying very low. And in fact, many of those hospitalizations are misclassified. Um, They're actually with COVID instead of for COVID. We swab everyone in the hospital. So if you really look at severe disease as determined by ICU admissions and deaths, we're staying very low in the city of San Francisco. That's how well the vaccine work. But getting a mild infection on top of that is going to happen. Yeah. One quickly, one last thing before we uh, we go. Um, There is a story today uh, and the, the figures emerged over the past few days that people, I think it's age 60 and over, uh, have not fared that well because of the Omicron surge. Why is that? So what happened over the BA1 winter surge, unfortunately, is that enough of our older populations were not boosted to the degree they should be and the degree they were to, an example, in South Korea. I will say that it, I cannot overstress the importance of being boosted if you're an older person, over 65, should have gotten that third shot should even get a fourth shot right now. So the boosting is incredibly important for older populations. And then Paxlovid and Molnupiravir, the antivirals were not available over the BA1 surge to the degree they are now. Now they're freely available. We should use them in our older patients. That's Dr. Monica Gandhi. Doctor, as always, thank you. Welcome back to KNX In-Depth with Brian Ping. In for Mike Simpson this week, I'm Charles Feldman. Russia is making gains in eastern Ukraine. Its troops are close to completely taking over a key city that would further put the Donbass region in Russian control. Now this comes as Ukraine is waiting for more weapons and aid from the U.S. and other Western countries. Can Ukraine, with help of the U.S. and others, fight off Russia? And what does Europe look like after this war ends? With us is retired Navy Admiral James Stavridis 
former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO and author of a new book, To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. We appreciate your time. Thanks, Ed. So, so let, let, let's start off, obviously, with what's happening in Ukraine. And I want to get your, your sense of where this ends. What does the end of this war, and I presume that there will at some point be an end, what does it look like, do you think? Well, let me start with three simple words, which are, I don't know. And nobody does. A war is the most unpredictable of human activities, to say the least. But I'll give you my base case, kind of two and three chance that it turns out this way, just based on history and my own knowledge of the region as a former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. I think this probably ends up with the two sides exhausted, uh, probably by the fall. Uh, at that point, they will in all likelihood be looking for a negotiation. Um, and it could end up uh, like the Korean War did with a still a perpetual state of war on the Korean Peninsula, but the forces kind of exhausted on both sides. There's an armistice, a line is drawn somewhere on the map, whether that line is inside Ukraine or the Ukrainian border with Russia, we don't know yet. But I think that's probably how this ends up as opposed to Russia suddenly picks up its game and conquers the whole country. I think that's highly unlikely. Putin is overthrown, very unlikely. I think where we're going to land is something like what I just described. Admiral, it's often been said that uh, Putin miscalculated. He thought that this uh, invasion would uh, drive a wedge uh, between NATO and cause it to further splinter. It had been bruised from the uh, Trump years, uh, the harsh criticism there, but it only seems to be making NATO stronger and bigger. I mean, first of all, did you ever anticipate in all your time, in your lifetime, that you would see Sweden and Finland being uh, actually reaching out to want to be part of the club. Um, indeed, uh, during my four years as Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, I would often go to Helsinki and to Stockholm and talk up the alliance. And there was really no fundamental interest there in joining the alliance. And by the way, these are two highly capable militaries, excellent troops. I commanded these troops in Afghanistan, Libya, the Balkans. They came as partners to NATO alongside our NATO troops. They are in every sense the equal of U.S. troops, British troops. They're exceptional. And then finally, it gives us a whole northern flank that creates further military problems for Vladimir Putin. So, no, I never would have thought that. And I'll give you another I never would have thought. I never would have thought Germany would double their defense budget in a single year. That distant sound you hear is Vladimir Putin's head exploding with the unintended consequences of this invasion. Well, let me add to the list of never would have thought. I think that you probably never would have thought, I'm guessing anyway, a few years ago, maybe even a year ago, that Vladimir Putin or anybody in Europe would even threaten the potential you know, use of a nuclear weapon. And now it's being sort of thrown about with a, a degree of, of casualness that I find kind of shocking. Yeah, let's differentiate here uh, between uh, Vladimir Putin reaching for the lever to the nuclear apocalypse and launching a massive nuclear attack on the United States. That's world ending. And I think that is not going to happen. Putin, for all of his flaws and faults, 
He loves his country. He knows it would be destroyed in such an exchange. And he kind of likes his life. He's in charge of this big country. He has nice properties all over Russia. He has mistresses, children, wives. We can, I think, park the idea of an apocalypse. Would Putin use a tactical nuclear weapon? I don't see the utility for him of doing so. In other words, he can create a similar level of military effect with his conventional weapons. Um, and he knows the opprobrium of the international community would be massive. That would be a, a unique act. And that probably would pull NATO directly into the conflict. I don't see it. Where I am concerned is, would he use a chemical weapon? I could see a couple scenarios where that could happen. He'd try and blame it on the Ukrainians. Um, that's more realistic. I, I don't lay awake at night worried about a nuclear exchange here. And we are back now with the retired Navy Admiral James Stavridis, a former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, author of a new book it's called To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision. Uh, I wish we had time to go through all nine conflicts. We don't. So give us two. I'm, I'm going to start at the beginning, which is John Paul Jones. Pretty hard for a Navy guy not to do that. And John Paul Jones is faced with an intense decision under extreme pressure. His ship is literally burning underneath him. Many in his crew are dead. British uh, captain calls across the water, says, you have to surrender, captain. And John Paul Jones utters those immortal words, I have not yet begun to fight. And this becomes a, a through line for the United States Navy. It's a perfect example of the book to risk it all, Jones is literally risking his life, his career, his sailors, and on a throw of the dice that he can defeat his opponent, and he does. He beats the British despite uh, all the odds against him at that point in combat. The other story, let's jump to the 21st century. It'll be one that people know. Um, anyone who's seen the movie Captain Phillips will remember the story of the, the uh, salvation of that captain, Captain Phillips, by the U.S. Navy. That strike group that rescued Captain Phillips, all those SEALs, those destroyers, those big deck amphibious ships were under the command of a brand new uh, untested one-star admiral named uh, Michelle Howard, happens to be African-American. She did a marvelous job knitting together everything she needed in order to create an outcome in which she was risking it all on behalf of the hostage she rescued. The book is full of stories like that, that I hope will help people in the day-to-day -day decisions we all have to make. How do you prepare for those? How do you make those decisions? Uh, to risk it all is, is about making decisions under stress. Yeah, I was going to say, Admiral, not only is this a great book for uh, fans of uh, naval history, history in general, but also, you know, managers and anybody else who has to make uh, big decisions. It's in the title, The Crucible of Decision, and uh, be able to gain inspiration from some of these figures. Yeah, and let me just add, uh, right there in Southern California, one of these seemingly endless uh, uh, shooter incidents we saw uh, in Laguna Woods, a shooter go into a church, um, lock it down and start approaching the congregation intent on massacring them. What happened? A doctor named Dr. John Cheng, remember his name, charged the gunman. He made a choice to risk it all in an active shooter situation. He knocked the gunman down. The other parishioners were able to then subdue the gunman. Only one person was killed, Dr. John Cheng. He's a hero. 
he is also someone who made a decision to risk it all and he saved the lives of that congregation. Mm-hmm. Pretty remarkable yeah. story. So I got to ask you, uh, I mean, s- some jobs just, they just sound like great jobs to have. So so being having been the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, it sounds like a pretty cool thing. What was the coolest thing about it? Well, first of all, the minute I got the job, I went home and said to my wife, okay, from now on, I want you to call me Supremo. <laughs> <laughs> That never happened. So so I failed in that sense. But the coolest thing about the job was that at that time, there were 28 different countries. And a big part of your job is to go to each of those capitals and meet with the heads of state and government, meet with Angela Merkel in Germany, Nicolas Sarkozy in France, David Cameron in Great Britain. The opportunity to go to those capitals, to meet with those leading international figures on behalf of the NATO alliance was life-changing deeply enjoyable, and I learned a great deal in it. Retired Navy Admiral James Stavridis, a former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, dare I call you Supremo, and author of the new book, <laughs> To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision. Go check it out. Admiral, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Brian and Charles. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Brian Ping in for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The long Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial is finally over. Jurors came back with a verdict today. They ruled in favor of Depp in his libel lawsuit, awarding him $15 million after Heard claimed he abused her. Now, Heard didn't technically lose, though. The jury found in her favor, too, agreeing that she was defamed by Depp's lawyer, who called her abuse allegations a hoax jurors awarded her $2 million. So with us to kind of break down this verdict and trial is attorney, consultant, and legal analyst Tracy Pearson. Tracy, thanks for being with us. Uh, you know, it's hard to say in this kind of a, of a case, uh, if anyone really wins, uh, I think they maybe both lose. But in the eyes of the law, I suppose, and in, in terms of the money awarded, uh, Johnny Depp won more, didn't he? Well, thank you for having me, by the way. Um, I, it's really great to be here. Um, I think that Johnny Depp won, uh, absolutely uh, won in this case. Um, you know, Amber Heard's, the finding for Amber Heard was technical. I think if Johnny Depp had not attended the meeting with the Daily Mail, uh, which there was no evidence to refute that, uh, that he would have prevailed without any finding against him. But here, Amber Heard's credibility was uh, was poor uh, at best. And uh, in this case, um, the evidence, you know, was very strong that Amber Heard had manufactured photos um, and that um, that she wasn't credible with her allegations. The money is one thing, but uh, Johnny Depp really wanted to clear his name in the public eye. Did he accomplish that? Absolutely. Uh, The public is absolutely behind him. The crowds in Fairfax County, Virginia, and I've been following this case since the beginning. uh, Those crowds were huge by the time the case ended. And even people showed up for the verdict. Um, It had almost a carnival atmosphere. But, uh, you know, social media has uh, is on fire uh, on in favor of Johnny Depp. And I think that he is on his way back to Hollywood. This wasn't a sequestered jury, was it? It was not. So is, is there a danger, though, that that carnival atmosphere that you just described very accurately, really in favor of Johnny Depp and the social media that was in favor of Johnny Depp could have somehow influenced that jury? 
Uh, you know, it's always possible. There was a what I would call a bye week where there there was a week that they had to take off because the judge had a mandatory conference, uh, and so the jurors were free to to do whatever they wanted during that time period, and very well could have seen uh, social media and uh, mainstream media. But um, you know, jurors are very good, I think, about following the rules and about. Uh, staying within the lines of, of what they're required to do. Uh, sure, they were greeted by people during, you know, their entrances and exits, but it, they take this job very seriously, I find. Johnny Depp was awarded $15 million. How much of that money is he actually going to see? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, you know, by by public records, you know, Amber Heard's worth about $6 million. Um, you know, at the end of the day, Amber Heard technically is owed $2 million. Um, and so, you know, he netted about 13 million and it's very possible that, you know, barring a successful appeal that Amber Heard could file for bankruptcy. Well, I mean, do you, do you think, though, he's going to really collect the money? I mean, he doesn't need the money, presumably. And to your point earlier, what he apparently was really after was vindication in the public eye. He's gotten that. Does he really need the, the bucks? No, I don't think he does. And, you know, if I if I had my guesses, I would say. Um, except in the case of his attorneys who, who might have done this case on contingency, uh, you know, he doesn't need the money. Attorney, consultant and legal analyst Tracy Pearson. Uh, Tracy, thank you very much for joining us. Well, one of the great mysteries of the universe, are we alone? Lots of scientists say probably not, given the vast size of the universe. But if that's true, you know, why don't Aliens, you know, visit, send us an email, maybe a text, as your mother says, you can't even call. Uh, <laughs> E.T. phone home. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, fear not, because Caltech is on it. Two scientists in a new study say they think they know why aliens don't visit us. It's largely the same reason we don't visit them. They never get the chance. Stuart Bartlett is one of the co-authors. He's with Caltech's Division of Geological and Planetary Sciences, and he's joined by his co-author, Michael Wong, astrobiologist and planetary scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science. So uh, why are we so unpopular? Why does no one want to come visit us? Well, I would speculate to start with that um, they may have a completely different set of interests if they have interests at all in the in the way that we think of interests. So it's possible that the differences between us and them are so stark that um, exactly what they want to do with their available resources, energy and information and so forth is just impossible for us to imagine. But um, what we've sort of speculated on in this paper is the possibility that in general for any civilization that's consuming energy, resources, and learning about its environment and its wider world, that you end up with a rate of innovation that is just so fast that the innovation and the productivity and the, and the learning grows so quickly that the civilization essentially loses control of that of that innovation and um and the system ends up having to reset and that will temporarily keep you keep you going but if if this imperative of growth and expansion is always uh, part of your civilization's goals then you're going to keep running into this this problem of exponential growth and uh basically divergent 
population growth in a finite time. And so if that is if that is a general feature of life in the universe, then that would that would uh, prevent us from hearing from potential other civilizations because you either stop growing or you keep burning yourself out. And, and just so we, uh, I want to make sure we keep everybody straight with our listeners. Uh, Stuart, that was you, I presume, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah Stuart. So, so Michael, let me let me ask you this: Is it possible uh, that I mean, you know, you know, the Earth has been here a long time; humans have not. Uh, I mean, is it possible that we were visited a long, long time ago? They came, they saw a bunch of dinosaurs, and said, oh, "Not for us." <laughs> that's a great question and really there's so uh it's so hard to know right uh if if something if if we were visited by extraterrestrials uh you know hundreds of millions of years ago uh what they would leave behind is probably going to be very difficult to uh to detect uh here uh in the present day so you know a, a lot of this paper is, is, is speculation. It's, uh, it's a hypothesis that we want to uh, promote and just to share with the world. Uh, but none of it is uh, for sure, because a lot of science and astrobiology right now, that's the state of the field where we can't prove anything quite yet with the limited amount of information that we have. And another great question is one that you just brought up. You know, there's been a vast amount of time that life has been here on Earth, but a very short amount of time in which conscious sentient life of the type that we are has been around and a lot could have happened in the interim and uh, we just wouldn't know about it. So it's a great challenge for us and one that, you know, hopefully we'll take steps towards uh, solving. Yeah, Stuart, you'd have if to I could just. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, please. Yeah, I just wanted to follow on. So the other. So Mike mentioned, you know, what what kind of evidence might be left behind? And I think it's reasonable to speculate that if uh an intelligent civilization really wanted to w- reach out uh, into the distant galaxy. In my opinion, it's highly unlikely that they would go through all the hassle of moving uh, matter and energy because the the costs, the the thermodynamic costs of doing that are relatively high. And so, even if even if you take our current state of knowledge with uh, quantum mechanics and uh, general relativity and so forth, it would probably make more sense to quantum teleport some small intergalactic sensors to the place that you're interested in and just move information over these vast distances as opposed to moving energy and material. We're kind of doing that on radio, you know, because our signal goes out into space forever and ever, and maybe they're listening to us, and uh, maybe that's a reason to come or a reason not to come. Who knows? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, before I let you go, I, uh, Michael, I'll, I'll ask you this. Uh, any alien species smart enough to come here, obviously, is probably going to have a lot of the same problems we have here on Earth. they got they got they got to unify and act as one to accomplish such a huge undertaking. And uh, I guess humans probably aren't alone in you know, having conflicts that might prevent that. Right. So one of the things that we wanted to promote in this paper was the idea that we are entering a new uh, potential era of of an, a species that has evolved to the extent in which it, it can understand its own trajectory and perhaps rewrite the underlying dynamics to chart a new course. And so we say in this paper that, you know, we may be an intelligent civilization, but we have not reached wisdom yet. We have not uh, uh, homeostatically or reached a balance uh, with our environment that will allow us to persist for an indefinite period of time. Uh, And so, you know, when you say a civilization out there, a hypothetical one that has the capability to visit us, well, again, as Stuart said, maybe they 
are more interested in just maintaining their own balance and studying us from afar rather than coming all this way. All right. That is uh, Michael Wong, astrobiologist and planetary scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science, joined by Stuart Bartlett at Caltech uh, with the Division of Geological and Planetary Sciences. They are the co-authors of a new study as to why aliens have not visited Earth. Uh, I, I still we're think probably they, they, better off that they are haven't yeah, come. I, 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 I can't say it's good. Stephen Hawking said if aliens come, it's bad news for us. So it's probably good. Unless they but, dropped in on, you know, like Hawaii. I think they probably looked around and said, nah, and, and just left. Yeah. I mean, the stitch dropped in on Hawaii. He had a fun time. From <laughs> This has been KNX in Death.